and welcome to Challenges That Change Us, the podcast where we talk to our guests about how their challenges have impacted them today and how they overcame them. Whether you are someone that feels like you are thriving right now, trudging through the mud or somewhere in between, this podcast is designed to give you practical advice, profound insight into your own experience and inspire you to embrace your life. My name is Ali Flynn, the co-founder and CEO of Tri Altitude Performance, and I will be your host. It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. Today, I interviewed Dane O'Connor. He lives with an incurable cancer. It's a slow-growing cancer that can be treated, but it cannot be cured. He has been living with this for 10 years, well beyond the statistics, and today we talk to him about his mindset in this space. He talks about navigating severe anxiety and some suicidal thoughts and some strategies that he uses on an everyday basis. He has been dealing with this cancer for 10 years. This has far from stopped him, as you will hear in this interview. He volunteers for the Cancer Council and he loves being part of the community. Every year he participates in a charity mountain bike ride called Tour de Rocks, a local organization that gives funds back to local cancer support organizations as well as Tour de Cure cancer research. For Dane, the last 10 years have brought highs and lows, cancer, divorce, cancer again, a new partner, five kids, three stepkids, three step grandkids. He describes his quality of life improving out of sight since accepting all of his challenges. But that has not come easy. It has taken many, many years for him to find the tools that work for him. One in three marriages end in divorce. One in two people will get cancer by the age of 80. Dane told me if he can help one person with his story, his story is worth sharing. His story hasn't finished. He knows his cancer will be back and maybe even one day take him. But knowing this has made him live a fuller life. The words he uses is, I'm a better person than I was yesterday. Thank you, Dane, for your story. And let's get into it. So I'd really like to welcome Dane O'Connor today to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on and spending the time to have a chat today. Yep. Thanks for that, Ali. No, it's great. And I really love to start the podcast with a couple of questions, which our audience is very used to by now. And it just allows us to get to know you a little bit in a different way to talking through your challenge and some of your life experiences. So the first question I love to ask is, if you were to use an animal to describe you, what animal would you choose and why? Yeah, I did think about this one on the weekend and um, my kids were laughing at me, but I believe it's funny and I've always thought it is a, is a donkey. What? Now, <laughs> I just think with the donkey, I think I'm, you know, I'm probably not the fastest, not the quickest and that, but I never give up. And I think I, I remember when I was young, I used to breaking cattle and that and used to tie them to a donkey and, the, you know, the cow or the bull would, you know, pull the donkey around for hours on end. But at the end of the day, the donkey wins. He just does, does not give up and wherever he goes, the, the bull will follow him at the end if they're tied up. So, it's just something I've always resonated. Like I'm probably a little short, little stocky little fella and I just think... <laughs> Got a little bit of fight when I need it too, I can bite. Yeah, and I just really see a donkey as what I can see myself as. So, yeah. And I'm sure we're going to hear so much about that today, in, you know, that fighting spirit that you've needed over the last 10 years. Like, it, would you have described yourself as a donkey even when you're in your early 20s? Probably, yeah. I think in a different way. Like, I think, you know, like a lot of people who played football with me and that, I was probably the angry little hooker. So, you know, I was, I was all talk and sort of had a go, but I was, you know, not as big as everyone, not as quick as everyone, but I still, you know, I, I thought I was 10 foot tall. So, probably there was, I'd say a donkey would have been there, so somewhere. And you've got so many kids. Is it five? And, yeah, got, then, a, and then some. <laughs> yeah, I've got a Brady Bunch. So, I've got five of my own. So, um, they range from 16 to eight. And then I've got three beautiful stepdaughters who are a little bit older and three Step grandkids now, so grandkids as well. So we're all, yeah, and they go from four down to 12 months old. So yeah. Oh, and would they describe you as a donkey? Like if we got all of them on, would they say that? Yeah, I'd say they'd say I've got a bit of, yeah, like they'll probably call me cranky sometimes. They'll probably call me happy <laughs> sometimes. But yeah, I think who knows what they'll say, honestly. <laughs> so yeah. Sounds like it's pretty standard across though. Yep. The other question that I love to ask is Did you have a favorite place or a favorite room when you were growing up? 
I was ha- I had a happy childhood. I think just thinking back to my you know home where what I grew up in. But I, I always used to love to sit on the front veranda, even at my grandparents' house. Everywhere, like I had a grandparents who lived out on a property, which I just loved sitting out, just watching over the paddocks. My other grandparents lived on a very busy road, and I'd love to just watch the trucks go by. But even now, I just love to sit out and just have a coffee, just think, and just talk, and just watch people. Like I don't know, but I think. That's a happy place for me. It's just um, sitting out on the veranda, seeing neighbours go by, waving, you know. It's a weird one, I know, but it's just, it's just something I, no, I do remember. No, I was remember. thinking, yeah. we used to, I went to school, one of the schools I went to was at King's Cross in Sydney and we used to, people watch all the time, we'd just go to the Maccas there on the main street and we'd just sit there for hours, my mum and I used to do it, for hours just watching people come and go with their differences and how unique they are and even just the different way that people walk or interact with people that they're walking with. Like it's really fast. If you're into people watching, it's a thing, I reckon. Oh, it is. And I even, like I travel a bit for work and I like motorings because I like to sort of sit outside and just, I don't know, I just like to be open a bit. So, if I'm in a confined motel, I just feel, yeah, I just can't, I have to go for a walk or something. So, yeah, it's just something I think I, I enjoy is just, um, yeah, sitting out looking at things. And, Dane, I'm going to get you to start with a little bit about your career so far because you've just, you had quite a significant change in your career, which we'll get into a little bit later. But do you want to take us back to kind of, you went to uni, that's how we know each other for the people listening. We knew each other from college, but what happened after uni and what was your career to date? Yeah, when I finished uni, so I did a Bachelor of Agribusiness Economics at university and I was lucky enough to get one of the National Australia Bank graduate positions in business banking. So I started with the NAB, had five years there doing, you know, I was their credit analyst, financial analyst, up to sort of their sort of management side of things. I did that, yeah, for five years. And then I sort of, I wanted, I needed to get back to Armadale again. Anyway, I got offered a role with a manager I had years ago when I was a bank teller at State Bank, even before uni. He offered me a role running the commercial side of things for, back then it was called the New England Credit Union in Armadale, which is now Regional Australia Bank. So I started with them as a business banker, sort of did all the loans, and I ended up becoming, I got promoted to regional manager, so I looked after the branch network, and then I ended up doing all the business development stuff for the probably the last five years I was there, and I absolutely loved it there. It was a great place to work. They were very community-minded, and I, although banking's boring like it is for anything, but I really I really love what they did in the community. They're a non-for-profit, and, and that with my role as a business development manager, I really got to do not just the banking, but go out there and help actually non-for-profit organisations, you know, achieve their goals. So, yeah, I really do. Are there a couple of career highlights that you think about during that time? Definitely. I think I had a lot of people under me for a while when I was regional manager and I used to love seeing people get promoted or, you know, to really aspire to what, what they want to be. Like I remember there was one girl there, I remember she, she was just a, a loans officer and, and I told her she'd be the next me. And few years later, she ended up becoming regional manager and that. So, that kind of thing really was a, something that got me, kept me going. Like, I love seeing people develop, getting them in the right positions and, and helping them to succeed in life. So, that was a, a massive thing for me at Regional Australia Bank. And probably the other thing too is, as I said, when I was business development manager, which I was for years, the, the network I got around the state, like the like the whole state, I've got a really good network of people, which are, and a lot of them come from university days as well, from Albies and that. But it's just you know through rugby, but through work, and it's just I had the best job just travelling around talking to these people, which I'm doing now with my new role. So yeah. And, you know, I say it to my kids often, it's not necessarily what you know, it's who you know. And I think no, sometimes exactly. we don't give enough emphasis to that. A lot of my contacts these days have come from uni days where we had a lot of fun and I don't think many of us did much study. But now that reach is so huge. You know, you can pick up a phone to almost anyone in any industry from the college we went to. Definitely, yeah. And I've got my, my son now and my stepdaughter they're both looking at going to university I said you've got to have at least a year at, at college you know not because of you know like you'll, pro- you'll probably have fun don't get me wrong but it's about the connections you'll get you know in years to come so yeah it's definitely something I reckon it's, it's huge so yeah. And so the last 10 years have been pretty huge for you and extremely bumpy and that's what we've come on today to talk about because there's been a lot of different things in the 10 years from an incurable cancer to a career change, divorce and we were having coffee the other day and having a conversation about this and we both said let's get on, let's get on and do an interview because there's so much that you have taken away and experienced and learnt And, you know, that's what you said to me. Like, if I can share my story and it has an impact for someone else, let's do it. So, I was wondering if you could take us back to the beginning for you when this all started to unfold. Yeah, no, definitely. So, um, if I take it back probably even past 10 years, I remember I was when I was working at the NABs, I was, you know, like I was probably 15, well, 
16, 17 years ago where I remember being there one day and just felt a lump under my neck and I just thought, oh, that's weird. And I was playing football and that. I wasn't sick or anything and I thought, that's just weird. Anyway, then I, I just forgot about it. I don't know. You know, I just didn't think anything of it. And then I changed career, went to Regional Australia Bank. That's where I ended up working and I remember feeling it again, but the symmetry I had two lumps in my, under my neck and they were symmetry to each other and um, I thought I was just a part of my body. I don't know. I was just a 31-year-old. I was probably 30-year-old then. And I kept on just going on with life. I thought I was getting old. Like that was my biggest thing. I was playing football at the time, and I was—I remember I was thinking, these young blokes are just—they're too fit now. I'm just—you know—I'm getting old. I—I I just can't keep up anymore. But then, by chance, I went to—I was very conscious about sunspots, and you know, because like, obviously I've got fair skin and that. And I went to the doctor about a sunspot, and I on my arm, and I said, I've just got this. I just want to get it checked out. And I said, while I'm here, what are these two things under my neck? Anyway, they sort of felt them. They said, look. Let's just get them tested. Well, I don't know what they are. They could be just a enlarged lymph node or it could be a cyst or something. Anyway, so we got them tested and that's where the journey sort of started for me. Yes, yeah, so I got a biopsy and they couldn't do the biopsy in Armadale because um, apparently these they were cancers or tumours. Just Yeah, they could not get to them under my neck where they were because there's a lot of nerves in that under there. So I ended up getting moved to Sydney. Like I remember just playing football on the Saturday. I think on the Wednesday I was down in Sydney in the cancer ward. And they did all these tests on me. I was away from my family, and I didn't—I didn't even know what I sort of had, or I was quite happy in there. But I remember being in the room with three other cancer patients, and in that time I was there, unfortunately, two of them passed away. Like you know, when, when I was in there, that's really confronting. It like- was um, very, especially when I wasn't—I didn't know what was happening. And then I remember the doctor come in, or the oncologist, and said, "Dane, you've got um, lymphoma." And then I remember ringing my wife at the time, and I said, "Well, at least I don't have cancer." So I didn't have a clue. So then I Googled. Oh. Can you, I'm just like taking a moment on that. I'm just like, it. that's because when you were saying the story, I'm like, I wonder how much you knew about cancer being 30 and that was 10 years ago from now and being a young male. I was like, it's probably, and then for you to say, yeah. oh, lucky I don't have cancer. Like, Yeah, it was a different time. And then I still remember they said, you've got non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And then I thought, at least it's not Hodgkin's lymphoma. I thinking non was probably the better one. So then I got on the old Dr. Google and, um, yeah, it said, yeah, obviously lymphoma was a cancer. And the when you look, like I always looked at stats, you know, what's the stats of you dying and that, and non-Hodgkin's was, yeah, not the good one to have. And then they told me I was at advanced stages, so I think I was stage three um, at that time, which means stage one's if you just got a tumour in one spot, like say if I only had a tumour in my neck, that'd be stage one, it was nowhere else. Stage two where it's on one side of your diaphragm, so just in your sort of chest to thing, and then stage three is if it's in both sides of your diaphragm. So I was just, and then stage four if it hits an organ as well. So I was stage mm-hmm. three, so it didn't hit an organ, but I was definitely all through my body there. So that's what I was told then. And then when I sort of looked at it, it said it was incurable, which that's probably the biggest thing I couldn't fathom. I thought incurable, you know, that's, you know. Like- it wouldn't make sense as a 30-year, like that. Yeah, that no, just, it was. How do you even get your head around that? Yeah. Anyway, so as I said, I was pretty blase and I, was, I got all these tests done. I got bone marrow biopsies and they're not the comfiest thing to get. <laughs> but I only recently had one again and it's, yeah, it's not, it's probably one of the things I could say is probably the most uncomfortable things you could, I've ever had done to me. But yeah, so anyway, I, I got it done and of course it was pretty advanced and I must have, you know, that they said it was time for, I really had to get treated. Like with, with the cancer I had, it's a slow growing cancer. I could have had it for 10 years, I don't know. And I probably did, but it's slow growing. But the problem with it is it's kind of like a bit of a time bomb. It can turn aggressive at any time. So, and that's just something I've got to live with now. So yeah, so anyway, they did a few tests. I mean, because I was young and probably one advantage I had because I was only 30 and I was playing football and I was probably fitter than, um, you know, most people who get this kind of cancer, they end up giving me this chemo what was only supposed to have once a month for you know for six months but because I was younger they end up hitting me every two weeks to because they said this may be something where we'd be able to get rid of it you know and I said I'll I'll try anything so I end up doing this pretty harsh chemo and it was harsh I gotta say it was not a fun experience I was sick but I, I tried to I was determined to keep on working through it as well which I did until I got pretty sick at the end but then the mind game started uh, I've got to say so I had of um a lot of anxiety happened. This is post. Are you talking about oh, post is, treatment now? This is sort of in the in treatment. So um, yeah, I'll, it's kind of like you've just blown through it. Like I'm like, well, uh, but what? But what? So you, like when you say that you're in Sydney, did you have to stay in Sydney the whole time and have treatment, or did you come home and were able to get treated back here? Was there a time frame? Like yeah. I was down there for a week or two. I can't remember. And that's just that's just getting my 
my diagnosis, what staging I was. Because with lymphoma, it's such a there's so many different types. It, it, it's huge, and there's so many different treatments, which is a good thing. So if one treatment doesn't work, there's so many others you can do. But the probably the hardest bit, and it was both times I've gone through it now. It's it's the waiting. It's the it it doesn't oh. just happen overnight. Like it takes can take months to six months to for things. So yeah, I went to Sydney, got all my tests and that done. Then I had to come back and wait and wait, and finally I got the you know what stage I was, what kind of lymphoma it was all that stuff and then i had chemo which chemo i could get done in armadol which was good so i had chemo every thursday i remember for eight rounds yeah every fortnight on a thursday for eight rounds and it hit me hard and i I worked all through the time i knew every day i had had a different kind of sickness it was quite weird how i could just tell what was going to happen the certain days and i got to my second last round i remember and i just wasn't getting to that next level which you know usually start to get better through the through the chemo rounds and what happened basically with your white blood cells which lymphoma is a blood cancer a normal person's i remember the night the number is 14 like that's what your blood count should be with your white blood cells and you're dead at zero i was 0.02 so i obviously <gasps> got an i obviously got an infection and yeah it wasn't oh good my back in the, God. Yeah, yeah and it was really weird like i remember that the night before I went to hospital, I was in bed and I just could not. And I ended up going to the spare bedroom because I just needed to just, you know, just be by myself. And it was really weird. And it's funny, my son, who's 16 now, he would have been only about five at the time. He still remembers me getting up and going, throwing bricks to the dog next door. And I can't, re- I remember a dog was going off and would not shut up. And obviously my mind was just, obviously, you know, my, my body was trying to, keep alive sort of thing and I've gone out and started throwing bricks at this dog next door it wouldn't shut up and I can't remember that but I sort of can like it's kind of a weird thing but anyway the almost, next day almost in like an like hallucination kind of probably, state do you mean yeah. like a yeah yeah I'd say so anyway then I went to they got me to hospital I remember put they put me in sort of the intensive care in this sort of I call it the fish tank room you know it's just all glass no one could come in no one could come out and yeah that's because my blood counts were so low that if any if I got anything else I would have been you know a you know, like I was too far gone as as it was. So, did you know that at the time? Is that something? Because I know when you talk about it now and you look back yeah. on it, it's very real, right? Like how close you were to death. But at the time, was you were you just in survival yeah. mode, or I didn't think I was that close. No, um, at yeah. the start, I remember I was angry because they wouldn't let my kids come in and see me and stuff like that. But then the priest come in, and obviously the priest came in because I may not have made it, you know, that night sort of thing. So he was doing because I was. I was baptized. I'm a Catholic, you know. I was born a Catholic, sort of thing. So obviously, the priest come in, and I remember I was so angry, thinking, "Why the hell would you let the priest in, but not my kids? If I am going to mm. die, well, why can't I see my mm. kids?" And you know, like I'd rather see my no, no offense to this priest, but I'd rather no. see my my kids. So I obviously was close, you know. But luckily, with the medical thing, they gave me some. I don't know what it was, but it fixed me, you know. Like they, they apparently there's a antibiotic what they just give you and. They don't know if it's going to help or not, but it's pretty good. And obviously, whatever I had, this antibiotic fixed me. So, after a few days, my blood count slowly got up. And um, yeah, and then I think I was discharged after six days back and I was able to do my last chemo, you know, and then sort of finish it. So, yeah, I remember being in that room and I remember dozing off kind of like I was falling asleep, but I knew I wasn't. But I remember walking down, like my family had a farm out near Kelvin, which is out near Gunnedah. And my favourite spot to go was the cattle yards because that's when my you know, grandfather would be doing his cattle work and I just remember walking down from the house to these cattle yards. And I remember like when I was sort of dozing off in this hospital thing, I remember walking to the cattle yards, like obviously in a dream or I don't know what it was, but I saw, I could see my grandfather there who's obviously passed and that and I was excited to see him. But then I saw my other grandfather who wasn't a farming person and I thought, what's he doing here? But I don't care, I'm excited to see him. And I was going up, walking up there and then all of a sudden I could hear lunch is ready. And that's when I was young, when lunch was ready, my grandmother and mother would yell from the kitchen window, would you know, say lunch is ready and then you'd all turn and you run back to the, the farmhouse. And um, and I remember that happening and I've turned around and then obviously I've woken up and, you know, back in my hospital. So I don't know if that was a sign. I don't know if it was just a dream or if I was hallucinating. Yeah. I don't know. But the thing that sort of made me realise is I wasn't afraid of where I was going. So if it was something like if I was dying or whatever I was doing, I wasn't going to a a bad place. It's not that uncommon to hear a story like that. I don't know if anyone's spoken to you about that, Dame, but when you get that close to death, there's, you know, people often talk about seeing loved ones or feeling like they're in a different place or a light, you know. I've spoken to a lot of people that have been that close and there often is something and you'll never know, right? We'll never yeah, know, no, but yeah. 
there's a sense there or there's something, there's an energy there. Exactly, yeah. And I can't tell if it was me going or if I can't tell if it was just like me throwing bricks at the, bro- the dog if I was just hallucinating. I don't know. But yeah. it was definitely something what what made me at, at ease yeah. with that thing. But but anyway, that, that sort of happened and it, I'm not a religious person, but I'm definitely spiritual. Like I, I definitely, yeah. I believe there's something other than, you know, like we've got, it's just for what we have in life, it's just too much of a unique you know, experience to just have this and then you die and then nothing else happens. I, I really believe there's something outside our body, you know, going further, you know. So. Has that changed with the last 10 years or is that something that's always run deep within you? I honestly probably thought there was something, but I, I grew up in the Catholic system and, you know, that's all you sort of got put down your throats all, you know, about that side of thing, which was great. Everyone's got their own beliefs. But I was only saying the other day, I believe if I look at all the different religions and stuff, I really – Although I don't sort of follow a religion, I think Buddhism is sort of probably the one that really makes sense to me more than any. Mm. Just about their, they believe in, you know, there's really sort of an out-of-body experience. They celebrate death instead of fearing it. And that's, mm. I got, obviously with all the stuff I've gone through, I have read a fair bit about it. And I really believe we should be celebrating death in a way. Like it shouldn't be just, it shouldn't be a fearful, like we're all going to die one day. Like that's just something I've accepted and it's something none of us are going to get, you know, we're all going to die one day. But I think we're, we are very fearful of that. Very few people are in the position that you've been put in though, you know. I think people fear death and they fear sudden death and they fear losing quality of life and I'm sure we're going to get to this. But something you've said to me that's really stayed with me over the time is that you've used the words my quality of life almost improved when I got cancer. And I remember the first time you said that, it was like, what? You know, yeah. what do you mean by that? Maybe even now you could be able to explain that a little bit. Yeah, so when I first got hit with cancer 10 years ago, I've I got to say I was so fearful and that's where the anxiety started Like, because I was again told I had an incurable cancer. It was always going to come back. The reason I first grew a beard was because I was trying to find tumors. You know, this is after chemo and that. I was trying to find, you know, it coming back that I, I was actually bruised under my neck because I was sort of trying to feel so hard to find a lymph node and that. And mm. I ended up growing a beard because that sort of, I don't know why, it just stopped me doing it. So, and I've always had the beard since. And I still do it sometimes, so, especially since it's come back. But after that, obviously, I've had 10 years to siphon this, you know, siphon what I've got through. And I've accepted now what I've got. I've taught myself a few, I don't know what you call it, sort of tools how to deal with the anxiety now from, from cancer coming back. But I think anxiety, it, it snowballs on you. It wasn't just, you know, it started off just being, oh, you know, I hope cancer comes, doesn't come back, but it ended up being anxiety and everything. It overtook my life. Like it just really become, I was just so anxious about everything. I was uptight and I I didn't like the person I became. And this is probably five years after cancer. What was it like for you with that anxiety when it was at its peak? What did that look like? How did it display itself? How did you feel and what did you notice? I got to, if I said a word, I'd say pressure. Like I just said, like pressure, I felt pressure inside my body. I just felt... I remember even I had an ache in my sort of throat. I just, it just, like I had that pressure of just anxiety, but also I was so, and I think once you become a parent too, it wasn't really, like when I'm thinking about if I die, I wasn't worried about me as such dying. It was about my, my kids. Like that was the biggest mm. thing. What I, I felt, it was really anxious, but also pressure about to make sure they're right, you know, but that was a huge thing. Time frame pressure. It sounds like that even be time frame pressure. Yeah, definitely. You yeah. know, if I've only got X, how do I make sure? How do I line all the ducks up? How do I make sure that everything's how it needs to be if I'm going to be leaving this world? Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. And the other thing, I did a bike ride a few weeks ago and I had to talk at the end, you know, obviously about my journey because it was a bike ride for cancer research and that. And I, I remember I took the end and one thing that really choked me up at the end and it really, and I sort of forgot about it after 10 years, but I remember when I first got cancer, I, I had to, I Googled how old are kids to remember? Mm. And I think I was sort of thinking, I really want them to remember me. And my mm. kids at the time were five. Don't make me cry. Yeah, it made me cry the other day too. Um, oh. my, yeah, my kids were five, three and too one. Too little, yeah, too little yeah. to lose their dad. Yeah, so that was a... Probably the biggest thing that chokes me up is is the kids. Mm. And I think all that stuff's just snowboarding. I just had anxiety. Like I couldn't focus at work. I couldn't focus at home. I, I drank a lot. You know, look, I've always loved to drink and that, but I was unhappy. Like I could tell I was unhappy in my life. Did you know it at the time? Did you know that you were unhappy or did it just did you were you just aware of this pressure and you were just going moment by moment as opposed to actually knowing that that's how it was yeah, for you. There was a few things. Look, I remember thinking I didn't want to think about oh, when people, you know, when people always say, oh, when I retire, I'm going to do this. 
I knew in myself I wasn't going to make it at retirement. I knew, you know, I, so I, yeah. I sort of had it where, yeah, like I, I knew, I knew there was something not right there. I wasn't looking forward to the future because I knew, didn't think there was a future. Yeah. Look, like, I had family around me and stuff like that, but I just didn't talk to them. Um, I got to say, like, alone. It, it's a lonely road. There's no one can walk that road with yeah. you. Yeah, and I think what it did too, a lot of people change when you get diagnosed with cancer and it's no, I'm not blaming people, but they, they treat you different. I've got to say, especially yeah. when I had chemo and I lost my hair, my eyelashes, everything, people look at you like you're deaf. A lot of people think, oh, no, I don't, but people did. Like I've got to say, mm. it was it was probably one, and I hated going out in public because of that. It wasn't because, you know, like I wanted to go out, but, um, and I hated to, when people say, I'm so sorry you got cancer or stuff like that, which is fine. Like now I'm, I'm all, you know, I'm quite strong. I joke about sort of me having cancer and that, which is just my inner humor, which is probably not that humorous. But it's, um, I, I just think I, I did become probably a bit of a recluse with it because, um, yeah, I just didn't want people to see me like I was. It also, when people say stuff, it brings it to the surface, right? Like in that yeah. moment, in that point in time, you might be trying to do something in your world and not think about it. And yep. then someone says something and it's like brings it right up to the surface again. And I mean, we'll have this conversation later around what could people have done versus not, because I don't think people can get it right as well. You know, it's like, if they don't say anything, it's like, why are you not saying anything? And then if they do say something, it's like, oh, I just want to forget about that for a minute. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think like you're right there. It's no one's fault. It's like when someone, someone's parent dies, like, how do you react to that? Like say, I'm so sorry for your loss or, you know, like it's just like, Mm. I find it awkward myself to say, you know, it's when people are going through things, you don't know how to, so I, I don't. No one did anything wrong, like how they sort of approached me, but I could feel it in myself how they treated me sort of thing. Yeah. That reaction, no matter what happened, there was a reaction there for you that made you more recluse. Yeah. And the other thing I remember I did, which I sort of regret now, I did not take a picture of myself when I went through chemo. I don't have a picture of what I look like because I thought if I die, I don't want my kids to think that's my last who I was. Yeah. You know, I, I, I didn't want to be defined by cancer. And unfortunately with cancer, especially when you go through chemo, it takes all your dignity out. You've got yeah. You, you've got nothing. All you've got is your your skin. You don't have hair. You know, you just it's a really weird thing to explain, but I had nothing. Like you look at me, you knew I had cancer. You know, that that was me. That's yeah. all all I could think I was. I look in the mirror every day at myself and I just looked at cancer. Yeah. So I didn't take a picture of myself because I thought I didn't want the kids to think of me like that, you know, so or remember yeah. me like that. How did you move through that anxiety? Like Yeah, so I had it was really bad, you know, as I said, for the first one to five years, I've got to say it was bad because I was thinking, because when you when I Googled when's the average of this cancer coming back and the type of cancer I had, it was 18 months, you know, and I got to mm. 18 months, still no cancer back. I got to three years, still no cancer back. And I thought it's, it's around the corner, it's coming back, you know. Of course. And it didn't come back. And, and But then I started to change, my mindset changed a bit where I thought I'm not going to let it define me. So I started doing, I remember, I, I don't know if you've ever heard of that Oxfam walk, it's a 100K walk into Sydney, yeah. like it's, I did that, I think, uh, a few months after I got, you know, finished cancer and that because I wanted to sort of just prove to myself that I can still do stuff. So, I did that and then I did um, the Tour de Rocks, which is a, a cancer ride we've got here in Armadale, which is 270k or something from Armadale to South West Rocks and I started doing these things just to really prove to myself. It wasn't proving anyone else just to say that I I can still do this stuff. Like, it's it's all in the mind and, I, and, I really, and it was in the mind. Like, I started to become fitter than I ever was. How did you go from though being recluse to to doing that? Did you just make a decision one day that you're like, I'm going to commit and do this event or did you start slowly? Like how someone um, out there listening is going to be like resonating so much with what you're talking about but not knowing where to start. Yeah, I, I remember the Tour de Rocks. When, I remember being in a chemo chair and I saw her on Facebook or something, you know, a few friends of mine, they only just started. There was only about 10 or 12 people there was, you know, who started it. And I saw they did this ride. I thought, what a great idea. I said, I want to do that when I get better, you know, like it's to raise money for cancer and stuff like that. So I had a bit of a determination there. And then I was lucky when I was at Regional Australia Bank, they were a big supporter of it and had a team. And I thought, I want to do it. So I did. And I struggled the first year, I can tell you. Like I got off and walked a bit. I got pushed up hills. I Well, donkeys aren't meant to ride, yeah, well, that's you know. It, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's it, yeah. But, but, but I did make it, you know, like I did still made it. And and then I did it every year. Like I've done like the whole, the whole time. Like I haven't rode the whole time. I've support crewed sometimes. I've rode and it's just something I did. And when I say I was a recluse, I wasn't a recluse. Like I love people. I love talking to people. It wasn't that – but I probably was more of a recluse to my family and that because I didn't want them to just see me like 
my family's not an emotional family. Like my mm. parents and my brother, we're not ones to come and give ourselves a big cuddle and that. And it's just, it's not that we don't love each other. It's just who we are. We're just not a um, an affectionate family. And that's why I'm probably extra affectionate to my kids, you know, I try to be. But I didn't want them to see me at, at a weak stage. Like, I don't know. It's that pushing away. I remember mm. <laughs> I remember saying to my husband when I was in ICU, I was like, please promise me that you'll find someone else. And he yep. was like, what? <laughs> and I was like, just promise me. I had tears in my eyes and I meant it with every ounce of my body. I was like, please, it made me cry now, but please yep. find a mother for the children. Like, yep. find someone that you can be happy with. Like, And I remember trying to push away. And then yeah. last year when I was sick, I, I was so ashamed that I was so sick I couldn't get up and that this is how the girls are going to remember me. Like, I'm just going to get worse. And that, like, it, it almost, I don't know for you, but, like, you retract, like you're saying. Definitely, yeah. It's so, easier to withdraw. Yep, definitely easier to withdraw. And I just think my, I had times there where I just, I didn't like the person I was. Or I, and one thing that really waked me up, I remember I was at Sydney for work for something and the night. I just got on the red wine like massively just by myself, like not and, yeah. and it was just because I was so anxious and I drank and I drank and drank. I woke up the next morning and the whole bathroom was just red, like just a wine and just and I don't know what I then I sort of I looked and I remember looking in the toilet and there was a towel shoved down the toilet. I don't know why, you know, and I thought, What have what I What is become? going on? Like, here? What have I become? And that sort of sort of made me think, I'm not happy in my life. Like there's something not right. But being a male, I didn't get help. I didn't get help with it. I But the only thing I did find what helped was going to the gym and lifting heavy, heavy weights. Like not mm. not just – but I mean I was lifting – like I don't know how I lifted what I was lifting, but it was – um you know, I'd be bench pressing 140 kilo when I was only 70 kilo and yes something triggered there that made me feel good, which was probably a good thing. It's also that little bit of control back, you know. Yeah, you probably, get yeah. like And there's discipline in that and the weights aren't going to change on you, you know. No. Like when you no. think about the rest of your external world, there is no certainty there, but there's certainty in weights. Yeah, like a 10 yeah. kilo weight stays a 10 kilo weight. Definitely, yeah. yeah. And I still do it. I still go to the gym, you know, four days a week and it's not – I don't do it because I'll – you know, to look buffed or anything like that. It's not about that. It's it's a mental health thing for me and it, and mm. it's something I'll always do while I'm able to do it. But I've also got into mountain biking now, the same thing, and also walking. They're the tools that I've really got to help me with mental health. But so with that five years and that, the other thing that I, I end up getting divorced, like I just think, you know, like I'm not going to go into why or what, what things like that because things like that, I'm not the first person to go through a divorce and I won't be the last. But looking back now, the best thing that happened to me is to lose everything and start again. It was yeah. like I said, it was like I was a computer hard drive and I've just deleted the whole lot, except for my kids, obviously, and just starting again. And that's what I needed. Hey, I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you are and you'd like to learn more or engage further with our podcast community, you can do this in our Facebook group. Just search for Challenges That Change Us on Facebook or look in the link in our show notes. In this group, we'll be sharing extra content and giving further background to our episodes so I hope to see you there. But for now, let's get back to the episode. Let's talk about starting again because, you know, a lot of people think they can't start again financially, emotionally, physically, like you're talking about starting it all again. Yeah, so it would have been sort of five, six years ago, five years ago, you know, when it all happened, when we separated and that. It was harder than the cancer anxiety, I've got to say, because Again, it was about my kids. You know, that was the thing mm-hmm. that hurt me the most is my, like, doing this to the kids, like tearing a family apart. And by then I had five kids too. So the other thing like I should say, and I should have said this before, so the oncologist said, you probably won't have any more kids again. That This is when I got chemo with this chemo. I said, that's fine. I've got three beautiful kids I don't want anymore. Anyway, two years after chemo, twins, I had twins, so, which is a blessing, like the beautiful little boys. And um, so that's and Just I had, so we're clear, that's five under, was it five under five? Five under eight, yeah, it would have been, yeah, five under oh. eight would have been. And that's the thing with the divorce too. Like we had so many things happening. It wasn't just, you know, like obviously I was, I had a few demons, there was other things happening. And there's five kids under eight, mate, any, anyone to get through that. Like we had three under three and it just, yeah. those early years are shit. Yeah, they they yeah. they were. There were some blessings in it too. But and as I said, like I've been blessed to have five kids too. I know a lot of people who can't have kids, you know. And yeah, and that's one thing. If I do die tomorrow, that's one thing I've got. I'm so you know that that's my highlight of my life. So starting again, how did you start? Like, what were the building blocks? What were the foundational blocks? Because I know the cancer, and we will get to this as well, has come back. And I know that the cancer you have is incurable, but you have done a lot 
in the last five to six years. Yeah, yeah. So, I remember, look, I actually literally left with nothing. I remember the first few weeks I rented this little house and I had a fire like, and, and my swag. Like, that's all, you know, all I sort of had. And I remember just, like, I come from having a, you know, like, obviously a family, a massive house and that. And I was just, and I thought, what have I done? I sort of had this mentality. I still have it now. I just, time heals everything. So just, let's just take day at a day by day. And and that's what I did. I did it day by day and it hurt and it did affect me everywhere. Like I was really struggling with work. I was struggling with obviously outside work. And I, I got back on the, it's quite a cliche, but I, I got back on the bike. So I got on my mountain bike and I rode, you know, just rode and started thinking. And, and that helped me mentally and got me my strength up again. I actually went to the doctor this time and said, oh, I'm I'm not right. Because I, I did have thoughts. I had thoughts of, you know, ending my, you know, like I knew I wouldn't have done it, but I, I had the thoughts. Like I just, I couldn't have done it with the kids. But but I also think that's a very real scenario, especially yeah. with not knowing whether your cancer was going to come back as well, you know, and then lo- like losing or choosing to walk away or however we want to say it, you lost everything. Yeah, yeah, I did. and And I probably had. It's funny, I had guilt too because I was the one who walked out of the marriage too. It wasn't yeah. – so I had guilt on that side of things too. But I don't regret what I did now because it saved me. It's made me a better dad. It's made me a better person. Yeah. However, I did have the guilt because I was the one who made that decision. Yeah. But I had to make it. Like I had to have a restart. Like yeah. I wasn't going to get better otherwise and it's – I don't know if that well, makes sense. Well, things were going but, south yeah. and they were going south yeah. quickly for yeah. your mental health, your yeah. physical yeah. – yeah. yeah. I didn't like me. I did not like myself. Like I, I thought I'm not a nice person. I've become so – like I don't know what, what I thought I was. But, you know, as I said, that trip when I was in that motel room in Sydney and that was by myself. I wasn't even going out to – on the pub mm. and seeing mates or anything. I just obviously – and I can't even remember, you know, and that, that was sort of a real – Thing. I thought this isn't what I want to be, you know. So, um, yeah. so I remember having a start again, and it was hard. But just as I said, I just took every day. I'll just try to be one percent better, one percent. Just try to get things done, and I things got did get sort of better. As I said, every day the kids. That was the hardest bit of it. I had. I got to say, my son probably struggled the most. He was probably I don't know what he would have been. He would have been eleven, twelve at the time. The others were fine. They were probably a bit younger and sort of didn't sort of see the concept of things. But I got to say, he really struggled, and that hurt me like hugely. It really hurt him more, especially when I started a new relationship. He just could not accept that. But now, totally, you know, now we're we're all great, obviously. But um, that was a really hard time. But what I sort of found out, what it sort of made me, once I sort of started to build everything back together again, I'd become to have more belief in myself. I thought I'm not a bad person. I'm I can do things and I started to do things what not took risks, but probably calculated risks in that which I never did before, where I like I end up buying properties and investment properties and shares and just and that was I stopped gambling like I used to and I instead of putting the money into but that I put money into shares and I sort of just changed my concept of things and although I've got to say financial stuff isn't the be-all and end-all of anything, like I've got to say. But at the end of the day, we're humans. We live in a society where finance is a is a big thing. But it's funny, when I when I stop caring about it as much, I end up probably doing better in finance, you know, like for myself, mm-hmm. it, it, which is a weird thing. Like before, I was so obsessed about making sure everything's right and I'm right for the future. When I sort of eased up on that a bit and just started doing things just for the fun, I end up probably, I'm probably now better off for the future than I ever was. And, you know, this is like I'm 41 now and I'm probably better than I ever was, you know. Wow, in just five to six years. Yeah, yeah. What advice would you have to a dad out there listening to this that is going through it? They've just left their relationship, whether they chose to or or the the other partner Um, did. But what would you say to them? Yeah, I think get help. One thing I did do, I went to Centre Care, which is an organisation here in Armidale, and I remember going to the doors and said, look, I've just got split up and I, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't, you know, because mm-hmm. I was sort of, I didn't know if I was going to lose the kids and I was, I remember I was getting hit with child support and, you know, and that's, there's nothing wrong with child support. That's just a fair system and that, but I wanted my kids more than I had them and then I thought, why can't I? Like, I'm still their dad. Mm-hmm. I'm a good dad. And anyway, so I went through that process of being, you know, and I think, again, like, Everything I read, it was always seemed to be whatever the other side wanted, not what I, you know, like as the male. Like I didn't know. And I thought, well, I was the one who left, so I shouldn't have to say, you know, about what I do. And I think one thing I've been trying to help a few other mates out now who have gone through the same thing, and that's probably the biggest recommendation, I said, go and see someone like Senecare and just talk to them about Because they end up putting me through a, a, it was a counselling workshop and I was with others who were going through a similar thing, both 
mothers and fathers and thing. And it was just, it was really sort of teaching about the best thing for their children, not about, you know, like obviously relationships break down. That's just a part of life, but it's about how to deal with the kids and that. And that was probably the best thing I ever did to go to Santa Care and really sort of be able to talk it out. When you think back to that workshop, were there some key takeaways to, that you got? Yeah, I, I've got to say probably one thing I said is, like, as I said before, it's, you know, like obviously breakdowns happen. Like family, like don't feel guilty about what's happened. Like obviously I wasn't happy and that's, you know, like I shouldn't have to feel guilty about not being happy, you know. Like yeah. like, like and for the kids, it was probably better that we did sort of, you know, Mm. Go, and I won't say anything bad about my ex wife either because things happen. It's not about that. It's just about, unfortunately, we, we just weren't clicking and that's just what we needed to do. And I think that guilt, that guilt can really kind of feed destructive behavior. And so if we can release that guilt, I think that can really free us up to create the life that we were meant to live or to create the life that we want to live. Like the decision's been made. The yes, decision's definitely. been made. So how do we find a way forwards? And start to create that life and have those positive relationships. Yeah, so that really helped. And the other thing, I did go to the doctor because I remember saying, look, I'm not I'm not handling this because I knew, I, I, as I said, I had those thoughts and I knew I wasn't going to do anything, but I, I, was, I, think, I was thinking that's going to be the easiest way out of this for everyone, you know, but mm-hmm. I just couldn't do it obviously with the kids and that. But I remember going to the doctor said, I'm just not. I'm feeling, and it was, it was really depression, anxiety. I don't know what it was, but they gave me some medication to have. And, but all that sort of, when I, I had the medication, but it just made me into a sort of a zombie. I remember there was one day where I woke up for work. I sat down to put my shoes on in the lounge. And then next thing, someone's come to my door at two o'clock in the afternoon said, we don't know where you are. This is someone from work. And I was just staring at a blank screen, wasn't even on. And I was, I was probably there since seven in the morning and I was just staring and I don't know what, you know, I was thinking, but then, and I thought, okay, I've got to get back into the, the exercise. That's my medication. That's what I've got to do. Yeah. Like, and so I, I stopped taking these tablets or whatever they were and um, got back in the, and that started to improve. So I, I just found exercise was my, and I know that sounds cliche. I don't know, but everyone says exercise. It's yeah. so true yeah. though. It's so, I mean, you are talking to a fitness instructor, but it, it really does. My background's in counseling and trauma therapy, but I now own a gym because I can help people so much in the gym space because yeah. we know fitness has a huge impact on our hormone levels, on our mental health, on our physical health, on it can give you structure. It can give you like oh, you can huge, start yeah. to kick goals. Anyone yeah. can get improvements in fitness in the right environment with the right support, you know. Yeah, no, you can't definitely. not improve. No, yeah, and sometimes, and I even came to things like when I was doing things for work. Instead of just, I'd walk. Like if I needed to think about a, you know, a strategic direction you needed to go or something I needed to do, I'd walk and think about it because I've just found I'd I'd come up with the answers. If I just sat at my desk and that, I wouldn't come up with the answers. So I just don't know if it's the blood flowing or whatever. But I really, and that really helped me get get going again is the exercise so I was bike riding I was mountain you know mountain biking at the pine forest here at Armadale yeah, at lunch times I was going to the gym I was starting to feel good again and I started to accept okay this cancer will come back but I don't know when but then and in that last 10 years I've had a few sort of friends or acquaintances who have died like of different things not cancer and then I think you know what everyone's you know look I've got just as much or probably got more of a chance of dying than someone else but no one knows when date's going to be when you die and I, I mm. sort of had to sort of and so what I sort of changed my life to be is I thought okay I don't know like I'm like for example now I'm 40 now hopefully I can live till I'm 80 or so so there's another 40 years there what do I want to achieve in that that 40 years like stop thinking about the past let's let's talk about yes. the future and that's what changed my life like so I've like I'm looking forward to the future now like I know I've got this cancer but I know I know it's not going to get cured but I know they're doing more things in research that makes it a bit more like it's going to end up hopefully be like a diabetes where you just mm. you may just have an injection each day and you just have to you know track that way and that's that's the you know the goal that I hope what happens with with my cancer it's not you know it's not going to be that it's going to be cured I understand it's not going to be but yeah what I'm hearing and tell me if this is correct what I'm hearing there was a shift between being in the past and being in the moment in a really like I don't know what to do with my life to, well, I have these days in front of me and what am I going to do with them? Yeah. Yep. A kind of, that's what I'm hearing. Is that what you would Definitely. say? Yep. Yep. I end up finding a new partner and she's my best mate. She's everything to me. She's gone through cancer herself as well. She had breast cancer. And Janelle and I just, we just, 
understand each other and it's just always I don't know, it's it's unbelievable and we're looking forward to just different things and I think now I do look forward to the future now. I think I do have a future even though I've got this cancer and I think that's when we, we have, I thought, I don't want to be working nine to five or something for the rest of my life and that's where I've thought, if I buy these houses and do whatever, you know, that's going to give me different cash flow, mm. not now but later on in life. So I think I've sort of taken risk but we, we do it together. We understand, I think because we've both gone through the same thing, she totally under, understands the anxiety I get because she gets it too. Like yeah. I know before she, she's got to go because she's got to get a scan in a couple of days, you know, just a checkup from her cancer. I know she's different at the moment but I know exactly what she's going through because I know problem when you get a scan, like people think, oh, that'd be good to know but you can't hide from a scan. No. Yeah, oh, my really God, weird, I understand so. that. Yeah, I will yeah. never forget driving to Tamworth. I don't know if I've told this story on the podcast, but Greg and I were driving to Tamworth for my MRI and I was like, this might be our last moment feeling like this for the rest of our lives. Like this might be the moment that changes everything. And I think when you've had so much medical, you can't unlearn what you know and you, yeah. you know it takes one test or one appointment to change your whole life. Everything in your world can be turned upside down in one sentence in a doctor's room. And that's what leading into tests, I get really anxious. And then the waiting game is where I get the most anxious. But even leading into tests, I get really like, oh, they're only going to find something or they're not going to yeah. find something. But either way, it's like, oh. Yeah. No, and I've got to say that's one because I still get anxiety now, even though I'm saying I'm so much better now. I, I take it, if you think about you've got a clear jar and you put dirt in there, you shake it around, you've got muddy water. Now, what I've sort of found myself to do is I've found a tool where I can make that, all that sediment, all that mud, all that shit settle down to the bottom of the jar so I've got a clear jar and that's my head being clear. Yeah. Sometimes it gets muddy again. Sometimes my, my mind gets muddy again, but then I've learnt these tools like, you know, a bit of meditation exercise settles it back down. So that sediment's always there and it's always going to be there for the rest of my life, but I've learned on ways how to clear that water now. It's not just going to be muddy all the time. That is such a beautiful analogy. And do you think about that when you notice yourself starting to yeah, get anxious? I do. Yeah. It's the way I'm um, – so, if I feel like I'm getting anxious and stuff, I will f- make myself go for a bike ride or a walk or something and it does. It just – in my mind, that's how I picture it. It's just like a glass jar and it's just – all that mud and crap's just settled Sinking down. You know, it's all bottom. sediment at the bottom. It's like a river. It sounds like you also trust the process. It's like you just know that the bike ride's going to help or you just know that, you know, you've got your strategies in your toolbox and you know if you put them into practice, it's going to make a difference. Yep, definitely. Yep, and mind you, I've had a plenty of time to think about it or work on different things the last ten years. But it's yeah. it is the way, and it's not about just thinking, oh, life's going to be good. Life's not going to be good. Like there's going to be things go wrong, you know. And as I said, the last ten years for me, the stuff I, I wouldn't have thought. Like, but I tell you what, I've had more positives happen in the last ten years than negatives when I when I think about it. Like I've got, as I said, I've got five kids. I've I've been blessed with another three sort of stepdaughters and grandkids and. Like we have a good life. Like, um, I don't course, know any yeah. other forty-year-old that's going to be stoked that they've got three <laughs> grandkids, other than you. I think that's so good. But that's that's perspective, right? Like yeah. for you, yeah. meeting your grandkids, seeing them grow up, like that yeah. is amazing. Yeah, like people just think, oh, all of luck. Yeah, I've had cancer a few times. I've had stuff go wrong, but I don't feel sorry for, and I don't want anyone to feel sorry for. Me. It's just what I've got. It's just the life I've been given. But yeah. what it's done is made me. I've now got a life where I know. I've had the chance to see or to understand that there is death at the end, you know, that that's going to happen. But it's hard to say, well, worry about it, but why let the worry consume you? Fear is of something that hasn't happened yet, isn't it? It's like we yeah. fear what is in the future that hasn't actually happened. And it's like that goalpost. When you kick a ball to the goalpost and it touches the post, it could go one centimetre one way, but what's to say it's not going to go one centimetre the other way? Exactly, yeah. And the other thing too, like I remember seeing my, my grandmother had dementia in a, in a nursing home and just going in there and just seeing these people, these old people just staring at walls and that, like mm. I think I'd rather – have a short but quality, you know, life, yes. I've got to say, you know, then like, and as I said, I don't believe we're ever going to cure cancer. I, I just want it to be more of a comfortable thing. Like, and I know Ali and I, we spoke about what the other day at our coffee about, for me, it's not about curing, it's about having a comfort or being with your family to get treated through cancer and living in regional New South Wales, that couldn't happen before. Like yeah. 10 years ago, it was very, like, as I said, I'd go to Sydney away from my family. I was scared. I didn't know what was going on. This year, when I went through it again, I had to go to Coffs once, you know, Coffs Harbour once, which is two hours away for one scan and I got treated in Tamworth. So, I, I wasn't away from my family for much and that was mm-hmm. a – this time around, it wasn't as 
scary. You know, I don't know if it's because my, you know, like I've gone through it before. It's amazing you say that. Like I just think, you know, and we haven't spoken about that and I know we're going to run out of time today, but that is the cancer has come back, hasn't it? It's yeah. But is it come back the same way or what just um, are you able to just tell us a little bit now? Because I think that's really important to this story. When we're talking about how you deal with the anxiety, it's really bloody real. Like, yeah, yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. So last, um, I think it was last June or July, I was in the shower and I just, again, just, I wasn't actually feeling, but I just felt a little, and I, I know what the tumors feel like. Like, obviously, I've had plenty of time. And it's weird. If someone, a lot of people say, what does it feel like? For me, it feels like, I don't know, you rubber bouncy balls, you know, those rubber bouncy mm. balls you get in those two. That's what it sort of, that texture. And I felt just this, wasn't it? It was only about one and a half centimeters. Like, it's just little. And it Only, like, that sounds huge, right? Yeah, no, yeah. Oh, you can get <laughs> to yeah, everyone was, else. That sounds was, massive. You're like, it was the yeah. size of it was the size of a tennis yeah, ball, but yeah. you know, it was tiny. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Well, the thing with your lymph nodes too, and that's the hardest thing when you're fighting an infection or if you're with a flu or something, your lymph nodes go up anyway. Like that's what they're designed to do. They to fight infection. So sometimes my lymph nodes are up there, and that's the scariest thing with it. I like, think, oh shit, is that you know, is that a cancer or is that just my you know, lymph nodes fighting infection? They say that. They can go up by to three centimeters, you know, with mm. just an infection, so not cancer. So that's what I mean. When it's one point five, I think oh, it could be just an infection. You don't know, but it didn't go away after two weeks. And I thought, and I knew what it was, like I knew. But anyway, but then you had to go through the process of just getting tested and all this stuff. So I went through all this stuff, and I was all here in Armidale, which is good. I had the bone marrow biopsy. That's where they pull your bone marrow out of your hip, and it's the most uncomfiest thing oh. you ever get done. It's, it's terrible, and everything was done here. I got a PET scan done in Coss Harbour. All the other tests were here, which was fine. Anyway. It took about three, four months, came back and they said, yep, it's back, you know, which I knew it was, you know, that that, that wasn't a shock to me. But then they said, don't you, have you broken your arm at all? And I said, no. They said, don't lift anything heavy. And I said, why is that? I said, I've just been to the gym lifting 120 kilo bench press. And they said, I don't know how you're doing that because apparently my arm, what do you got, whatever bone that's called, I don't even know what it's called, but anyway, it just lit up like a Christmas tree in this in the PET scan. Anyway, then I got an MRI done here in Armadale, and they said, no, nah, it's not cancer. It's just a, you've got some, I don't know what they called it, or some bone sort of disease, but they said, don't worry about it. I thought, well, I do want to worry about it. Look, obviously, it's not right. You know, <laughs> you've like just got another that, disease, but you know yeah. what? In the scale of one to ten, like, you yeah. don't need to worry about that. Let's just focus in on, yeah, yeah oh, my exactly, God. Yeah. But, but the lucky thing I had this time around, because obviously with COVID and everyone's got used to Teams and video conferencing, I, I got the lymphoma specialist in Sydney. Like, they actually did a Teams meeting with me and they had a whole team of lymphoma specialists and of course, obviously, I've got an incurable one. They take a keen interest in it because of research and that. And they had a meeting together with all, and they said, look, we're not convinced that's what it is. We want to take a bit of your bone out. And I, I remember I was more gutted about, I wasn't, I couldn't ride my bike for five months after, you know, getting Ooh. this. Yeah, so they took, and again, I got done in here in Armadale. They took, I think, a six mil square out of my bone to get tested at that. And then it came back and it was lymphoma. So it was really weird. I didn't have, lymphoma in my bone marrow where it usually comes it was in my yeah. bone so so that caused me to have it although i only had one lump in my neck and one in my bone it was classed as stage four because it's in my organ like your bone's your organ yeah. so so yeah but this time it was kind of good i, I was very fearful having chemo again only because although chemo has improved so much in the last 10 years it doesn't make you as sick as it used to you know it's still not good because i quit my job too that's the other thing that happened <laughs> when i did it so but i'll talk about that in a second but they end up saying you, you just have to have radiation. So I had to have 18 rounds of radiation um, every day for 18 rounds or something like that. So that's what I had this time on my arm and my neck. And that was done over December last year. So I think I finished Christmas Eve it was when I had my last round. It was a different experience again. Like when I first started, I was fine. Like I was – because I took – before I left my old job, I took six weeks sick leave. And I went down – lucky mum and dad live in Tama, so I took my golf cart down. Mum and I played golf in the mornings. I met up with mates who so I haven't met up for years. And I was having – like, I thought, this is great having six weeks off. But then it just started hitting me with fatigue. Like the fatigue. And yeah. I can't even explain the fatigue. It was um, it was crazy. It was yeah, – It builds, it was, right? It just is yeah. like – it's I'd, like a snowball going down a hill and yeah. it just builds and builds and builds and builds and then it's just this huge boulder of fatigue. Yeah, yeah. and I was walking six, seven K a day when I was getting treated and that and it was fine. But then it just hit me and I thought, oh, I can't, I couldn't do a thing. I was just absolutely fatigued and and then I had burn under my armpit because I had – or here, you know when you get sunburn and it's blistering? I had all that under my armpit. It absolutely just um, – so I was just – real big bad pain under my arm there but the fatigue hit me and then but then one day again same thing I did I thought I was on bed thinking I can't do a thing and I forced myself to walk I said I'm just going to go 
around the block or something. I ended up doing 6K. Like, for, and that got really – like, I, I started to improve. And I thought, well, again, it's a mind game, you know. And mm. it's, so, it's just, it was just that initial getting up and making myself walk. It helped me, you know. And I'm still getting fatigued now. Like, I'm only six months out of it now and I still get fatigue. I still get all that stuff happening. But I've, I've learned, as I said, when you hit, feel that jar and that murky water happening – I know what to do to sort of try to get yeah. that, you know, all the sediment to settle again. We talk a lot about that in this podcast. I've mentioned it a few times, but it's like it's not about using other people's strategies. It's great to get ideas, but it's about starting to know what buttons you can press in what moments or where to shine the lens to help you individually. And that's what I'm hearing from you, Dana. I've heard that from a few of our guests is you know what buttons or what levers to pull when you need to. And is it easy? Shit, no. Nothing about it is easy. You know, when we say this, you didn't just get out of bed and go for a walk. Like that was tough. But you know and trust the process and you know the things that work for you and you get to work doing those small things knowing that that 1% each day adds up. Yeah, definitely, yeah. And the one thing I do, like you talk about meditation, like I said, you know, like I remember when you are talking to Dill, you know, about his meditation, his coping. And I was thinking I do a kind of a meditation thing and it's like in Buddhism they have a a three-part approach to the meditation where, where you focus on something. And then you've got the mantra where you just continue to say, you know, I'm a good person or I can get through this. And yeah. then you concentrate on your breathing. Now, that's how the Buddhism way, you know, they do their sort of base, their meditation. But I, I, I noticed one thing I've done with that. Like if I'm going out to the pine forest in my bike or walking, I focus on trees like nature. Like I've just, yeah. it's a sort of a peaceful place for me is, is going out in the bush and sort of really, and I focus on the trees. And I do, when I'm riding, I, I do say, this cancer hasn't got me. Like, you know, like, look, mm. not, many, not many people can go up this hill, ride up this hill. Or, you know, I, I'm, so I am talking to myself, but then I do listen to myself breathe. Like, obviously, you're breathing a lot when you're on the on the mountain bike and that. But after my bike ride, I feel so just cleansed. Like, it's it's really um, – and I it's sort of think so that's powerful. What, yeah, and I think that's that's my way. It's not meditation in the way that you think it is. Because I know when I first heard about meditation, I thought, I'm not doing that stuff. That just sounds stupid, you know, like for, for me being a bloke, you know, blah, blah, blah. But – I am doing it, but I'm doing it in a way where it suits me. Like it's just mm. how um, I can't meditate at home because I've got five kids and yeah. you, know, like, you, you, you can't. You know, you can't can do you it, imagine? Yeah. Can you yeah. try and can you send us a picture of what that would look like? Can you go yeah. home this afternoon and just be like this and the grandkids? <laughs> this yeah. is what it would look like. But I, it's really great that you pointed that out because I think people when when you hear the word meditation, it's like I need to be lying down in my lounge room for half an hour listening to something on the radio or on not even on the radio on your iPhone, but it's not there's so many different ways that we can create mindfulness in our worlds have meditation i'm extremely similar to you dave the power of my inner chat is what gets me through life when shit goes down i will say something a really strong mantra a sentence over and over and over like i mean it like my life depends on it and that is something that i draw to a lot as well as breath work but just this power in that mantra oh it's huge yeah and it's huge how it gets you to where like a couple of weeks ago i did tour de rocks again you know this was i think it was three four months after i had the treatment this fatigue and I, as i said i'm still getting this fatigue but it was important this year because i did it with my son like he's you know as i said i didn't know if he would ever remember me back when i first got cancer this time around he was going to do this bike ride with me and I had my daughter as support crew and Janelle, my partner, as support crew. So, it was a very special time for us and I was determined to do it again. I would say I struggled this year because I hadn't been on the bike for five months till that day mm. either, you know, because of the thing. But I got through it. I, I did the ride, which was – and I think we, we climbed 1,500 metres a day, like for three days. You know, it, it was it was wow. a huge – it was a pretty hard ride. But Archie, my son, he was fine. He's 16-year-old. He's fit as a fiddle sort of thing. But again, when I was riding – same thing in my in my mind. I was just thinking, I can do this. I can't like because I could easily just said, oh, I'm I'm struggling because I just had treated four months ago. But it wasn't that. It was it's in your mind, you know. And I knew if I gave up, I'd I'd be feel guilty about. I think I shouldn't have given up. Like I should, you know, I should have done it, you know. Which which I got to it, and I was slow. And there was sometimes I just had to stop because I was getting pins and needles, and I don't know what I was getting them for. But I just had to sort of stop, give it a shake, and then keep on going, you know. So although it wasn't as fast as other years, I still 
as I said, the donkey thing, I was not going to give up on it. So yeah, yeah, what an achievement. It was. I was thinking that as you're saying that, I often laugh. This Let me in on a little secret that people probably don't know, but when I go up a hill when I'm cycling, I say it out loud and I always <laughs> think if someone could see me right now, they would think I'm a crazy woman. But I say my mantras out loud and I'm like saying with passion, I'm like, nothing's going to get me like, you know, and so <laughs> each to their own, right? Like, but you've got to find what works for you. You definitely do. Dane, we are going to have to finish up. There are so many more questions I want to ask you, but I want to, I want to wrap this up. And I, I was thinking we have spoken about a lot, but we also haven't gone, you know, very deep into a couple of things. First of all, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you want the listeners to know? The only other thing we probably haven't said, which is an important thing for me for my going forward is giving back. Mm-hmm. One thing I do now is give back. I do a lot of work with the Cancer Council. You know, we're obviously tour to rocks as well. And just I'm trying to get my kids into it too because I get so much more from life now for, for giving back than, than actually getting. Like giving back to your community is something else, which, sort of, you know, I have the exercise, but I've also got that what really helps me mentally as well. So it's – um And create yeah. – like we talk a lot about kindness and impact and that's exactly that. That's why I'm doing the podcast for the same reason. Everyone's like, oh, how do you make money off podcasts? I'm like, you don't. <laughs> I'm no, not doing this it. to make money. I'm 100% doing this to give back and to have an impact. And if this conversation that you and I have had today helps one person – one yep. person around the world, then it was worth our time. Definitely, definitely, yeah. And I'm happy to talk to anyone too. Look, I've had a few people who have had cancer come to say, Dane, I know you've gone through it. I need to talk to someone. They don't want to talk to his family. Like, it's hard. Like, they, they just, because they know family's worrying about it, but they talk to someone mm-hmm. who's gone through it. He's not really going to, like, yeah, you feel sorry for someone who has cancer, but I think you've got to have the tools to do it your way. Like, it's, it's, it is a scary time, but it is something you've, you, there's nothing you can do about it. There's no use sort of trying to worry or do it because you can't change what you've got. You've just yeah. got to sort of um, – and it's good to talk to someone who's gone through – I wish I had it when I, I first had it, is to talk to someone similar age to me, a young dad or a someone. They're probably not, You probably didn't know anyone, right? The only thing I saw was people who – like I was in the chemo ward, everyone was over 80 and I thought, why am I here? You know, like mm-hmm. I remember thinking. But now looking back, it's – I don't th- I don't feel why me. I don't. I, I, as I said, it actually changed me as a person and I'm glad I got cancer. It's yeah. almost propelled you forwards. Like it has, yeah. listening to you talk, you started to spiral and then it's like now it's what drives you. Now yeah, it's what definitely. gets you up in the morning. Like it's yep. crazy to think – how much you've done a 360 and I really hope it's valuable for people listening. When you were saying that then about talking to someone, I I was actually also thinking if this is helpful for people, talking to someone that's been through it or just talking to someone outside of your circle sometimes is a really helpful thing because sometimes people are too close to you when it's something so personal, like sometimes talking to an absolute stranger or someone random or someone on your outer circle that's, you know, a great listener and or talking to a professional, it's because you don't have to face them tomorrow. You don't wake up and roll over and see them or sometimes that can be really helpful. So, it's just trying what works and and if something does work, stick to it until it's not working for you anymore. My last question for you for today to wrap this up is what in your world truly makes you belly laugh? Yeah, I think my family. Like I've got to say, we've got, as I said, we've got- Your 101 kids kids and grandkids. And and Janelle, like I think, as I said, we're best mates and we we have a good time. We laugh. We we do everything together. It's just, um, and I just think just some things the kids do just, yeah, just crack, especially the twins. Like I've got two twin boys who are eight years old and the stuff they do just really makes you laugh. So, yeah, I've got to say my family, like I'm lucky there. So, And thank you so much for coming on today. You just was so vulnerable, but you also had so much insight and very few people can sit there saying that they've stared down the barrel of death so many times and still have the attitude that you have now. Like I know there was bumpy there for a while, but shit, it has to be, right? Like you can't go through that and not hit rock bottom, I don't think. like No, definitely not. And I think you need to. I think, yeah. as I said, I, I needed that reset. Like if yes. I didn't have that reset, I, yeah, I don't know what, what I'd be doing now. So it just, um, yeah, it totally cleared my, you know, and I, I've got to say, I'm, even before cancer, I reckon I'm a better person than before I had cancer. I was so self-centered. Yeah. I was so trying to fit in, trying to be the, you know, someone I wasn't, where now I'm just who I am, you know, and I'm, as I said, I've got a family. It's a big family. It's a different kind of family, but we're proud of our family. Like, and that's everything to me. It's cleansing, isn't it? It's cleansing when you can stand in your space, in your body, stand up proud and be like, you know what? I'm doing me. Like I'm yep. just doing me and I'm being the best person I can be in this moment. And I think we, so many of us could actually take a leaf out of your book in that space. Yeah, no, hopefully we can help someone. So, yeah. 
Wow, what a story. I took so much personally away from this episode and I really hope that you have as well. For me, one of the things in particular was hearing the difference in his mindset and his quality of life when he accepted the challenges. I don't know for you, but that's probably personally one of the hardest things that I struggle with is accepting the hard stuff in life, you know? So I just, I re-listened to this episode after it was recorded and that was what really hit home. Just thinking about, you know, why don't we just live our life and stop spending all of our days and all of our energy in that unknown space and that anxiety the fear, all the things that eats us alive from the inside out. So Dane, thank you. Thank you for telling your story. I really hope that, you know, this is a story that reaches many, many people around the world and helps people on their journey because it really, truly is incredible. I'm really looking forward to next week's episode. So uh, hang on tight and we'll see you all then. Thank you everyone for listening and taking the time out of your day. I believe we can learn so much from connecting with other people's experiences and stories. I hope you've gained some strategies and insight from today's episode. You can gain more by joining our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us, or next week we will return with another episode. 